Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am the president and associate professor of Old Testament at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and Dean of Students at RTS. Hi, Peter. Hi, Scott. Good to be with you again. Also joined by Dr. Paul Jean, lecturer in New Testament at RTS and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church. Hi, Paul. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Also joining us is Dr. Tommy Keene, associate professor of New Testament and academic dean here at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Hi, good morning. And we have the added treat of, again, uh, being joined by our already not yet assistant professor of systematic theology coming in from Jakarta, Indonesia, Gray Sutanto. Hey, Gray. It's God great to be here again. Okay, we're recording this in late April, and we're seeing a lot of high school and college and even seminary commencements coming up. All of them have been canceled or they're being postponed till next year um, or done maybe over social distancing in some kind of way. But it raises this question, how do we think about what we're supposed to do or what the Lord has called us to do as we're coming to the end of this phase of education, as so many students are right now, and looking forward to a new phase of full-time work, full-time jobs. Um, I was just over this weekend, I was at a conference uh, virtually of fellows who are graduating from fellows programs. A lot of these fellows programs are housed in churches around the United States, and it's kind of a a post-college year of preparing for vocation and having a broad theology of the kingdom in light of what, uh, you know, what everyone, everyone's individual circumstances and, and callings. And the question everybody was asking was, how am I supposed to think about what I'm go- going to do next, the, the next phase in life, particularly in this season of uncertainty? You know, what am I supposed to do in terms of my job when I see the market around me sort of in a, in a, in a state of stasis? Uh, what am I supposed to do when I see jobs being cut and employment dropping? How should I think about calling? And it raises this big question of calling. And so that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode, the idea of calling. So let me go ahead and open it up. Dr. Tommy Keene, I'd love to have you uh, introduce this idea can you just give us a little bit uh, of a reformed theological view on what calling is? Yeah, uh, that's a it's a, it's a huge question and one which you know I think we can we can talk theologically about it you know and you know and as you've kind of posed that that particular slice of the the question the reformed theological view like we can do, we can kind of think about a theology of calling and then uh, recognize that it's going to work out a little bit differently in each, in each instance that uh, some people are not going to fit the mold as it were. But in, in, but in terms of like that first question that uh, a theological view, uh, I mean, I think we, we have to begin with, with this idea that is uh, perhaps out of step with our culture, but uh, this idea that God has preordained he he has determined he has he has spoken to us about um you, you know his purposes for our life that that we do have a that god has fashioned us for his purposes for his glory for our good the reality that a call does in fact exist uh, upon us and, and that is responsible for me to then think through what what does god want from from me? How does he want me to use uh, the gifts? And so the concept I kind of lean on in that regard is stewardship, thinking about calling as a kind of stewardship of what God has given to me and using that wisely in the world that exists around me. Yeah, it's interesting. Even, even that phrase, calling, makes this a relational doctrine right it, it's it there, there's agency in it where someone is calling and someone is receiving a call and i think that idea of stewardship is a great way of unpacking it 
Can you explain a little bit more about the idea of stewardship, of Christian stewardship? Well, I mean, I like what you said uh, there about relational, that, you know, I am not an isolated individual. I'm, I, and the various gifts, characteristics, personality traits, et cetera, that, that characterize my life aren't accidents. They are given uh, as gifts from God or uh, challenges that I'm to strive to overcome. But they are relationally determined by this pre-existing God-ordained characteristics of my life. And, and as a result, I'm responsible to, to God to use these things well, whatever those things, whatever those things might be. Um, and they're unique to who I am and to the relationship that's sustained between me and, and the one I serve. Okay, I want to take the idea of stewardship a little bit further because I really like it. And, it. and it feeds into the practical application of calling or vocation, which are really interchangeable terms. Um, so I think some of us will probably even slip into saying vocation in this discussion. So calling and vocation in many ways are synonymous, but let me pop it over to Paul. Paul, what are the kinds of things, Tommy said that we're supposed to be stewarding these things that have been given to us. What are the kinds of things that we are to steward when we're considering our call? This is a topic that, all of this is a topic I've been thinking about for a long time. And I think that for many people, this principle might be helpful. See, when we think about calling, stewardship, Scott, I think you phrased it so well. People feel like they're lost. They don't know what to do. And there are actually a lot of sociological reasons uh, that contribute to this. Like, just as a quick aside, you know, because our society is becoming more, you might say, consumer-oriented, there are so many choices before us. Uh, in many ways, the plethora of choices, right, is actually keeping us from taking any action, right? Whereas in the past, when people didn't really have much of a choice, they didn't have these kind of existential struggles that we have, right? So I think that's part of it. But I think that this is a very helpful principle I think when it comes to this idea of vocation and stewardship. And you know, this is a principle, ironically, we teach at RTS in terms of exegesis. Uh, it's basically moving from what's super clear to I think what's less clear. I think that principle is very helpful. So what that looks like for me is um, the things that are very clear in my life is that first and foremost, I've been called to be a husband and then a father. See, that is like so clear in my life. And then I think the Bible also argues that um, when people become adults, they, they're called literally to care for their aging parents, right? First Timothy 5 talks about that. So for me, when I think about life, I actually look at it through what's very clear. And so like very practically, for instance, uh, let's say I'm in a situation where, you know, with all the qualifications, like there are times when we have to make extraordinary sacrifices. But let's say I'm in a situation where um, I have a one-year-old child, my wife is unable to work, uh, and I have an opportunity to work at like a fast food joint, like, you know, let's just say McDonald's or somewhere. And by the way, I, you know, I have a very high view of any vocation. I think someone with like my background that has a PhD would think, well, no, I should not work as a cashier or something. I think that because my calling is to be like a professor, I actually don't know if that's true because my calling is to be a husband and father, right? And um, yes, maybe God has called me to be a preacher. Maybe God has called me to be a professor, but right now doors of opportunity are closed. So I think stewardship for me in that situation would be to uh, apply for that job, get it, even if I don't think it matches my clinical gifts and background, and to live out my calling to be a husband and father, right? And so I would advise people that um, when it comes to stewarding your life, you need to just move from what's very clear to what's less clear. So I think that that's a helpful starting point. That's really useful, Paul. Thanks so much. Um, I think, you know, one of the most often, the conversation that I have most often here as a pastor working at a church is uh, with young professionals, especially, is this idea that they have in their minds that I, this idea that vocation or calling is primarily about 
a particular job or a particular role in society, right? So, you know, we have a lot of uh, late 20s, early 30s, even asking, you know, am I supposed to be a photographer? Am I supposed to be an entrepreneur? Am I supposed to be working for a big company instead? You know, what is my calling in life? And I think Paul and, and Tommy too, what you have both articulated is that I'm not so sure that the Bible is speaking about calling in terms of particular jobs. So that vocation is not primarily about jobs per se and more about a kind of character and about the relationships that you have before you. It's about stewarding your gifts and stewarding the relationship before you such that um, your giftings and your location could meet those particular needs of the people that are around you. And so what I try to emphasize in those kind of conversations is that God has called you to become a particular kind of person. So we know about the fruits of the spirit. We know about uh, what it means to be a mature Christian, at least from what the Bible depicts for us. But it doesn't really tell us that, you know, particular person has to be an artist or else he or she has missed the boats under calling. So I think dislodging that idea that calling is primarily about one person to a particular career or job is really useful here as a, as a, as a misconception perhaps to point out. That's really helpful. And it's actually, you know, I'm thinking about uh, my initial response and I think it's all true that you know, our calling comes from God and it's something that God wants from us and it's a proper response to the gifts and things that he's given to us. But there's a, a, a romanticism that can attach to that theology uh, that you know I've got to find the perfect thing. What does God want from me right now? And that, that ignores the ordinary and mundane things of life. Maybe what God wants from me right now is to you know, take, take care of my family by whatever means necessary, a great situational kind of thing to think about, Paul. There's, there's an ob objective side to the, this kind of thing. And I really like that, that uh, principle, Paul, that you put forward, the moving from the clear to the unclear, um, being cognizant of what's right in front of us. Yeah, I would actually add this too. Like, um, I think that the way we approach uh, calling nowadays very much reflects the kind of individualistic um, spirituality that marks like Western Christianity. And what I mean by that is like, I have encountered so many people that will hear sound wisdom, either from parents, from elders, from professors, about a direction that they should consider. But their response will be, but, but God told me this, you know, like, or God has given me this passion. And this includes actually many people, interestingly, that have gone into ministry saying that their bellies were burning to preach, but then they left ministry eventually, right? And I think that the reason why this romanticized, spiritualized approach to calling is actually very dangerous is because it's based, whatever you believe that God is telling you and pressing upon you supersedes everything. It becomes sovereign. And I think that that kind of spirituality is, um, you know, it's, it's not, I don't think it accords with the Bible. And interestingly, the example that most people use is they'll, they'll use famous characters from the Bible, like Moses, the Apostle Paul. But what we have to, and this is why Reformed theology is so helpful, because we understand that in redemptive history, God does speak uniquely to certain individuals. But if you think about the majority of followers of God in the Old Testament, New Testament, God didn't really tell them, you must now, you know, become a, you know, uh, like you must become a chef. You must, no, like for, for the most part, they just lived in community and lived out very ordinary lives, right? And so this approach of identifying unique, extraordinary, prophetic figures in redemptive history and saying, you see, God spoke to them, therefore he has spoken to me. I think that that's very problematic and it leads to a kind of sovereignty in one's personal spiritualization versus just common wisdom um, that God gives through the ordinary means of community. So. Yeah, I, I uh, really appreciate uh, everything you guys are saying on this subject. Uh, uh, the objective nature of the duties that we have as Christians as part of our regular um, uh, sense of calling as believers. You know, we're called to be believers. We're called to honor the word of God, honor our parents, as Paul mentioned, honor our wives, our children, 
Uh, that seems awfully clear. And I wonder if it's just not nearly as uh, highlighted as significant because there's, it loses the romanticism, as, uh, as you were saying, Paul. It, it doesn't sound spectacular. I guess I also really appreciate uh, a lot of what uh, uh, Tommy and Gray were saying. Uh, and I wonder in terms of, um, you know, we, we probably are not the best judges of our own character as well as our own even abilities. You know, we might think we're the best uh, preachers since the Apostle Paul when our spouses and families might say otherwise. <laughs> Or, or something like that. You know, it really helps to have objectivity and uh, feedback from others. Uh, when we think about uh, gift assessment, uh, I wonder if that is a helpful way for us to discern a sense of, of our place in the overall kingdom, our sense of call. You know, where has the Lord uh, given us strengths that we can serve well? perhaps uh, one task the church can uh, utilize and perhaps uh, exercise more is just, you know, discerning the, the God-given abilities that he has given to his people as a way of discerning a sense of a call of where they are to be best placed uh, in, in the overall structure of what God is doing in our community. There's a uh, sense in which we probably have a, a wrong view of spiritual and physical or, or natural and spiritual in this discussion too, because we often in that romanticized view that we've talked about view calling as sort of this strictly, you know, miraculous revelatory or what, what we might call special revelation kind of arrangement. And we miss the fact that God is at work in the world in all kinds of very normal mundane um, naturalistic ways. As a matter of fact, I mean, in our, in our tradition, the Westminster Confession, we have this great distinction between extraordinary and ordinary, you know, ways or means. And it's interesting that I think so often we're looking for the extraordinary, and yet our own tradition in the Bible itself teaches us that God is most often, I mean, just by the, you know, by the use of the term, most often working through the ordinary means. I mean, I think of myself doing public relations in Washington, D.C. in the 90s and just finding my interests be drawn to theology and, um, you know, starting to read a lot of you know, Spurgeon and Edwards because that's what was being recommended at the time. And just finding this to be, you know, a, a glass of water that I couldn't stop drinking because I just wanted more and more of it, you know, and, and talking to my pastor and he recommends seminary. And so I take a class and I, I realize now that I'm jumping into an ocean that I want to swim in for the rest of my life. And there are these, this kind of internal desire, but there's also opportunities that are coming available. I don't at that point right away quit my job, but now my job becomes one way in which I can move towards you know, this further pursuit of theological study. But even along that way, I have a lot of different jobs. Um, if I went, in, if you'd asked me when I was going into seminary, what I thought I would do after I graduated, uh, I probably would have said I would, I was going to be a pastor. After I finished my PhD, I wanted to be a church planter. Um, I did those things. And it was during those jobs that I realized, wait a minute, I've, I've got this, I've got this wealth of knowledge in terms of exegetical theology I've got this desire to do it. There are openings, ways in which I can care for my family and, uh, you know, uh, and, and love my wife well while pursuing the good and proper use of these gifts that I've been given and these talents and skills that I've accrued. And all of those things, all of those open doors, all those forks in the road lead you to where you are down the road right, where I am now. Now, even when I started RTS, I never would have thought that I'd be an administrator. And yet here I am, you know, now administering, doing a lot of administrative work at a campus. Those are things that developed quite naturally over the course of pursuing vocation. And that's the thing I kind of want to articulate to young folks when they come in and say, hey, I want to do this, or I want to do that. I think, Find out what you desire, what you enjoy, what you, what you have the gifts. And hopefully those things line up, by the way, the things that you desire, the things you also have gifts for. And what are the opportunities that you have available to you? And pursue those with excellence and watch and see how the calling unfolds, right? 
but it's often in this more naturalistic way. It's not in this, Hey, I had a dream or, or, um, you know, it's, you know, I, I, someone once told me X and that means that's what I'm called to do. Um, and I think in some traditions you feel like you don't have a calling until that, that kind of supernatural event takes place without going too far you know, into the naturalistic direction. I, I do still want to reaffirm the idea that God does know us all individually and uh, our Western individualism can take that and run, but there's still, there's still also this, this healthy view of God's involvement with us in an imminent way, calling us individually to the things that he's called us to do. that I don't think we want to forget as we recognize you know, the very ordinary and natural aspects of discerning a call. I'd be curious to hear Gray's uh, thoughts. Um, Gray, you know, you're in a period of transition. I think uh, here in Scott's story, uh, you know, remind me, he, he went from pastor to professor. That was my route as well. Uh, you're, you're right there, right? Um, transitioning from pastoral ministry to, to, uh, to, to the academy. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Tommy. Um, I want to reaffirm that that emphasis on God's ordinary means of working in the world and also that emphasis on the corporate dimension of discerning and confirming where you ought to be are so useful because that search for that supernatural internal light from God that calls you to a particular kind of job and no other is actually quite paralyzing. Uh, there's a romanticism about it, as, as you all mentioned, but it's incredibly paralyzing because uh, at least I think most of us would never feel that serious sense of extraordinary revelation. Uh, so um, that focus, therefore, on the ordinary and that focus on uh, the natural is so useful because I think it frees us up to simply do the faithful thing in front of us and also uh, be present in the moment, simply see what comes and falls to our lap and just take one step in front of another and just to do something to, to use Kevin DeYoung's title for that book, Crazy Busy, I think, or was it something about the calling one, just do something. The next faithful thing, um, I think that's really useful. And I think reflecting on my own uh, walk and how I ended up here, you know, I went to Biola thinking that I was going to be a youth pastor. I had a sense right after I became a Christian that I should be teaching the Bible. I was very enthusiastic. I wanted to tell people about Christ. And as I was in Biola, you know, there were people who confirmed, okay, maybe you should go to seminary. And there were financial means to do that at the time through scholarships as well. And even there, it was, I remember an email, uh, waking up to an email to say, hey, maybe you should be doing this PhD. Let me connect you in some ways, right? So it was really just the next thing. I didn't really have a, a grand scheme, a, a plan that I really wanted to follow. And I think that actually just freed me up to do the next thing. And now... You know, after about three years back in Jakarta and, um, you know, the ordination and all those things, I, I felt uh, uh, at home with what I was doing, preaching and teaching. But uh, it's definitely not going to be useful for us to, I think, um, speculate upon the hidden will of God to use, again, another distinct reform uh, uh, distinction, but rather to simply go with the revealed will of God. What does God want you to do now? All right. So I, I'm back in Jakarta and there was this church plant thing going and happening. Um, um, so I should preach. I should work with this great congregation. I should be working with Tazar, uh, you know, the pastor, the other pastor that works with me here and, and just do the next faithful thing. Because I also think that if you keep speculating upon the hidden will of God, my goodness, that is a never ending uh, a rabbit hole you know you could just fall there and, and speculate about where you are this could go on not just in terms of your your vocation but also did I marry the right person am I doing the right thing you know it's just not a fruitful thing to do and I think the reason why the bible is so clear about uh, uh, God's will for you in terms of his revealed will and the kind of character that you ought to be is because we have to focus on that and even now the transition to our TS I was um, looking back I think just doing the next thing and I think I want to encourage uh, perhaps listeners who are, are facing these things right now. What is the, the thing that is in front of you now? And what can you do now to help the people around you? The responsible thing uh, that is in line with God's will for you. I mean, it's clear that God rules out certain vocations for you. 
God didn't call you to be a truck dealer, for example. But the reason also, you know, there's another connection here. The reason why he hasn't called anyone to that particular kind of job is because it doesn't help you be the kind of character that God wants you to be in Christ. Again, that distinction between, you know, vocation as the kind of character that you ought to be rather than vocation as a job, particularly. That's what's more important, the character. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I talk about recommendations. There's a great book by Bruce Walkie called Finding God's Will that I think is very good at distinguishing a biblical view of dis, you know, discerning God's will in your life. But this also is, is sort of a larger umbrella topic that vocation can fall under. But distinguishing the biblical view of that from a pagan view, which would involve the reading of omens, you know, and, and, uh, and, and different kind of divinations and that sort of thing. And, and he argues that this kind of romanticized view of God's will um, is more pagan than biblical. And he talks about the fact that the first question you should always ask, you know, to Grace's point about the drug dealer, is it sinful? right? Is, is, is this sinful? Is this affirming of life or affirming of death, right? And then next question you ask yourself, do I have, you know, do I have the gifts and the skills and the talents and the desire to do this thing? Okay, do I have the opportunity to do this thing? And I can think of individual instances over and over again where people may have had three of these things but not another one. I mean, I, I remember a student that we had who, um, as a single guy, was was really really impassioned for the homeless and would invite homeless people to come live in his house that he met regularly to come live in his apartment. Um, He later got married and had a bunch of kids and would continue to invite homeless people to come live in his house who he hadn't, you know, he hadn't done any background checks or anything like that. And at some point, finally, his wife said, Hey, you can't do this anymore. We have little children in our house we, we've got to find another way to care for the needy. But right now, the opportun- that, that, that door is closed to us in terms of opportunity because of other considerations of loving your family, loving your children who can't protect themselves in this situation, right? But for him, this was a big paradigm shift in terms of how to think about calling. But I think it's also an excellent one because it's having you think about opportunities, realities, those basic limitations, and as you know, as Paul mentioned, balancing different callings, different aspects of your call with one another. There's a section in Paul where he kind of introduces that principle of thinking about your situation and allowing your call to be, ref- and the way in which you go about your call to be a reflection of that. He he he, in reflecting on marriage, and why he's single, he's. He's single, he says, because uh, to to be attached to a wife will constrain him in certain ways relative to the church. He he wants the church to be essentially his bride, and there's a kind of the reverse is also true that somebody who is married is limited in ways that a single person is not, and appropriately so is Paul's point that your situation can uh, needs to re- be reflected upon. When you're when you're talking about what you're supposed to be doing relative to the church, that's a, that's a big factor in what's right for you. And what's right for you might be not as might be not right for somebody else in a different situation. And I think that's caused a lot of problems for ministry families when people have this this improper view of calling, so that it outweighs all of their other you know, all of the other things the Lord has given them stewardship over. Um, And it's a good example, I think, of where bad theology can really lead to suffering, Uh, you know, real life practical suffering by people, particularly when a pastor has this kind of unexamined view of their pastoral responsibilities in light of their familial responsibilities. It's interesting that I think a lot of churches too feed into that, that they have a kind of single person view of what the pastorate should be, Right. but they want a married pastor. Now, I would add this too. Um, I think we might be, we might leave the wrong impression that um, we're suggesting a kind of passivity. Like I, I was thinking about Gray's story and his experience. There are a lot of parallels in my own life, but you know, is it, when we think about calling, I actually think sometimes people like shut off their brains. And what I mean by that is they're not considering 
well, I might have a passion for this, but what skills do I need to like learn along the way? Or, you know, some sense of how they're built as people. And so I think that if you just consider just a few, maybe like for instance, um, I was thinking about when I was 18, I thought that there, there was a chance I might go to seminary, right? And so I remember just walking into my pastor's office and I, you know, this is how ignorant I was. I, I didn't know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. And so I was just looking at his shelf and I noticed that, you know, the, his New Testament. And he said, yeah, you know, you have to study Hebrew and Greek in college. And so, I mean, in, in seminary. So I remember thinking, well, maybe since I have some sense that maybe I want to pursue pastoral ministry, it might be helpful to study Greek in college because language in general requires time to download and really master. And at that time, at that time, I never thought, hey, like 20 years from now, I'm going to teach Greek exegesis at Reformed Theological Seminary. You know, that's not the way it worked. It was just like, it was being proactive and at the same time realizing that you can't predict 10, 20 years from now, right? So I do think that it's helpful to definitely pay attention to where you are in the moment, live out your calling. But I also think the Bible, you know, has this really great dynamic of sovereignty and human responsibility. I think it's good to take proactive steps, you know, to acquiring a knowledge base and skill set that will enable you to, you might say, excel at whatever calling God makes clear to you in time. So and I want to make sure that you know, our listeners really, they don't walk away with the impression that just be passive, right? There is something to being proactive about what steps you want to take. There's another side of that that I've seen a lot of, Paul, in the in the church, and particularly in like reform circles, where we have this view of, of the will of God and and a strong view of the external call that the church needs to be affirming, and, and the, it's God and the church that calls me to whatever, to pastoral ministry or something like that. The, the error that can slip in there is that, you know, I'm supposed to be fully passive uh, idea, that there's no initiative that I'm supposed to take in, in, in that regard. Um, a pastor friend of mine, kind of early in my seminary days, uh, and I, I think they're repeating somebody, you know, how these things go, but um, told me that there's there's actually three sides of the call. There's the the internal call, the external call, and the phone call. And as a you know somebody who's very much convinced of the sovereignty of God, it, it's the the phone call aspect that is that is least attractive to me. That I would take initiative and I would start you know uh, uh, partnering with others and seeking relationships and network and all that kind of thing. That's so pragmatic. It's so practical. Um, and yet it's an important aspect of pursuing what God has called you to do. That's helpful to think about, Tommy. I think, you know, a distinction that Keller had made that I still find useful today is that I think people think that if you're faithful, you're not going to be pragmatic. And, and Keller says that, well, maybe that's the case. You don't want pragmatism, all right? You don't want to just rule your life in terms of what might be most advantageous for you and just go for gains and not care about the implications or things like that. But if you're faithful, you should also uh, try your best to be fruitful as well. Um, I think, I think so since center church and his uh, discussion there was in relation to, um, you know, debates perhaps or, or attitudes within the reformed churches that talk about contextualization. There are those who want to say, well, if you're faithful, then there's no contextualization. You just, read the Greek or something. That's the most faithful thing to do, right? Because uh, we're over against, you know, the hyper-contextualized church with, you know, the smoke machines and the, the razor guns, uh, the, you know, all those things that they, people think might attract the world, make your worship music like a Coldplay concert, you know. And, but he says that actually, if you're faithful, you should also strive to be fruitful. That fruitlessness is not a sign of uh, faithfulness that actually uh, fruitlessness could also be a sign that you're not faithful with the, uh, the, the task that has been said before. You're not stewarding your time and your giftings well, and you're not contextualizing, you're not reaching out to people well. And I think that's really useful to keep in mind here, especially you're talking about making the phone call, 
you know, networking, uh, making sure that you're studying up on the languages, being proactive in your church and academic contexts. That's, of course, I mean, sometimes you got to be thinking to yourself, am I being too pragmatic here? But at the same time, if this is where God has called you, you should be proactive. You should strive for fruitfulness. Gray, have you ever ziplined into the, into the pulpit? <laughs> Do I ever zipline into the pulpit? Uh, I've been tempted to just for the adrenaline rush. Of course, the showmanship is always there, you know. Yeah. No, there's, you're, there's no cool way to get out of the zipline, though. There's no cool way, yeah. I guess uh, I really appreciate, you know, uh, the idea of, um, of uh, being proactive. And, and I wonder if it's helpful not uh, to keep in mind, uh, you know, whatever we are asked to do or even whatever uh, pursuits that we make to, to gain a sense of our, our place in the, uh, in the overall kingdom work of God. You know, it, it, it's helpful to remember, remind ourselves that we are to pursue that with excellence, pursue that for the glory of God. In other words, there's a higher sense uh, in which that we are to do everything, to seek first the kingdom of God. Then these other things will start to come, even our sense of belonging, our sense of call. Um, and, uh, and I wonder if that's helpful in, this, uh, in, our, in our conversation here. I think that's super helpful, Peter, partly because it also helps us talk about vocation at a variety of different levels because we, we've been talking about it in the, in the context of people who have relative social, socioeconomic mobility. And, and there's the fact for the, the vast majority of the world doesn't have so much of a choice in what their vocation or what their job will be. And recognizing that whatever situation you're in, right, you're called to seek the glory of the kingdom so that all these things can be added unto you, right? Um, to, to seek Christ and to, be, uh, to offer mm -hmm. expressions and proclamations of the gospel. And, and I think it's helpful for us so often when we talk about vocation, it assumes a certain amount of individual agency in what jobs we're going to have and what level of society we'll work at and, and just have to realize that's not always the case for everybody. So as we're thinking about that, let's, let's explode this out uh, with a closing idea. I, I'd love to talk about... The idea then of spiritual gifts, because spiritual gifts aren't just for the pastor. They're not just for the seminary professor, but spiritual gifts are for everyone. So how do we think about spiritual gifts and how they play a role in this discernment of how we are to live our lives? Tommy Keene, can you start us off? It kind of touches back on where we started, the idea of stewardship, uh, because one of the things that, you know, God has fashioned us to be is, you know, effective agents, fruitful agents, to Gray's, to Gray's language, fruitful agents in, in his world, and he's given us gifts for that. And, and, and as you said, Scott, to everybody, this isn't just the pastor or just the professor um, but, you know, the, the classic, when Paul talks about it in the New Testament, he continually goes back to the, to the metaphor of a body and how the foot needs the hand and the hand needs the eye. And, you know, that language of the corporate identity of the church requires many gifts functioning together for the church to be fruitful. And so it is important to kind of think through what specific gifts, you know, I have received uh, what specific gifts God has given uh, to me, and then to use those effectively for the the building up of the body. I do wonder if uh, in that in that kind of idea, you know, again, one of the kind of romantic, uh, over spiritualized uh, mistakes that can happen is we we tend to reverse the proper order. We tend to think the goal is for me to be useful. And we put this big emphasis on what my gifts are and what my skills are. And we have those, uh, I don't know if you all have taken spiritual gifts tests um, in, in my Christian background, you know, every five years or so, uh, I'm, I'm encouraged to take one of, the, one of these spiritual gifts tests. And I, and I appreciate them, they're, they're useful, they're helpful uh, for kind of self-analysis. But the question is reversed for Paul, it's not, so much what are, who am I, but rather what does the church need? And uh, there's a, a kind of, pra again, a pragmatic and situational side to this discussion that I need to be thinking, how, how what, what does the church need right now? And how can I be useful 
within that. And maybe that's just moving chairs Sunday morning, and maybe it's preaching the word of God from the pulpit. Uh, but that other focus, how, how, how can I serve the, my neighbor in the church is, is a priority when we think about spiritual gifts. Yeah, I'm always struck by the spiritual gifts or strengths, you know, strengths finders or Myers-Briggs or whatever, whatever the testing that you're doing. I'm struck that it's, it's wise. I think it's eminently wise to know yourself and particularly to see if it reveals blind spots that you're not aware of. Um, and then I'm also struck by the fact that if you go throughout all of those special revelation callings that we find in the scriptures, prophets are generally called against their gifts, right? They're generally called in areas that they are not excelling in. And um, I mean, you know, Moses has a, uh, has a fat tongue, as he says, uh, which is why he shouldn't be a prophet. And, and um, Isaiah has unclean lips. And notice the Lord doesn't say, no, you don't. He goes, yeah, you do. We got to fix that. You know, and Jeremiah, at least it's implied, Jeremiah thinks he's too young. Uh, uh, Paul is pretty clear that he's the worst person to be an apostle of all Christians who are alive in his day. And he says he's not a very good public speaker. Um, and he's not a very good public speaker. And so I'm reminded of this, of this modus operandi of the Lord throughout redemptive history to choose actually people who aren't very gifted for the things that they're called to do. Israel is the least of all nations. You know, it's the baby who's left in the gutter, according to Ezekiel 16, uh, who God comes and finds. You know, the, the church is not many noble. The, it, it's, it's God showing his strength in our weakness and we don't want to normatize that right and at the same time recognize that you may very well find yourself doing things that don't fit your best strengths as you perceive of them but are given opportunities for the lord to show his strength in our weakness yeah that's absolutely true i mean you know there is a sense in which the lord gifts us to do the tasks that we are asked we are called to do but the success is of the Lord, uh, not our abilities, and uh, and that that's such an important it's such an important thing, especially for people. Uh, I suspect to a lot of pe people who are listening to uh, our podcast here, because I I guess I have a lot of people who are listening are very gifted, they're very highly educated, very capable, and it's so easy to. Um, to forget that uh, our success is is a gift of God, um, uh, that He utilizes uh, our abilities and, and and gifts to to bring about, but still from the Lord, and and that's such an important thing to uh, uh, to keep in mind in this as well. I think I think the key to doing that it, it's not that we shouldn't think about ourselves and, and think about our giftedness and and use that as well. That's obviously a, a question. But when we, but we, I think we often begin at the wrong end. When we begin with, I'm a special snowflake. God has made me special. I, I, I need. When we be, begin with, the gifts are about me being self-fulfilled, then and, and expressing myself. Then we've begun at the wrong end. We need to begin with where Paul begins. The gifts are for the church. They, they, they are designed to serve. They are designed to support the neighbor. The gifts. My gifts are best used when I'm using them to help somebody else use their gifts. And when we begin then, I can rightly kind of think and consider, okay, well, where, where can I be most fruitful? Where can I be most useful? But we begin it with the, a, a service mindset rather than a self-fulfillment mindset. And I'll be honest, I've, I've found my giftings sharpened and honed, and sometimes gifts come out of nowhere when I'm pushed to do jobs that I may not have wanted to do naturally. And yet I find myself doing something and I find the Lord now shaping me and forming me. I think one thought that came into my mind was that um, we need to keep in mind that people mistake charisma with character or competence. And I think that's something that uh, as an implication of all those figures that you had mentioned, Scott, from the Bible who are not actually particularly gifted for the task, but God still calls them anyway. You know, how many of these prophets uh, were would be called by local churches here today? I think sometimes our criterion for those who are called to ministry are simply those who are charismatic, not in the denominational sense, but in the sense that they are alluring personalities. 
but actually, you know, perhaps you're not the most competent or perhaps their character isn't yet tried or tested, right? And I think that um, keeping that distinction in mind and therefore vouching for and, and discerning competence, because it's good if he's charismatic, charisma is not bad, but competence has to be the primary basis for discernment. All right, before we close out, thanks everybody for your thoughts. Great discussion. There's a lot more to be said on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, have there been any writings or um, sermons that you've heard that particularly shaped the way that you think about calling? It was one conversation that I had um, actually just early 2019 uh, from a fellow minister in the IPC. And if he's listening to this, he knows who he is. Something that struck me from that conversation was he said, the church would do well to say no to young men who are looking for ministry rather than saying yes. And I think because of this focus on desire and passion and and this um, identification of vocation and calling to the ministry with internal passion, has he said, you know, obligated the church to say yes to men who feel like they're called rather than actually discerning whether or not they are called and qualified for ministry. And I think that's a, that's always kind of struck me and a parallel to that uh, as we were conversing that day was, you know, people in the academic world talk about having that talk, that conversation for those students who want to do PhDs to communicate to them that, Hey, you know, you might not become an academic even if you get a PhD. Uh, the job market is tough, and perhaps this should be the last thing that you think about. But yet at the same time, there is a surplus of those with PhDs because there's still, you know, there's perhaps financial reasons for it, but there's also just not enough people saying no to uh, these folks who, who want to do PhDs. And in the same way, perhaps, uh, we do well to think about, well, perhaps we should prioritize this, this, this hard work of saying no, of discerning, if we really do feel like this person has not been called and qualified rather than feeling obligated to say yes. And I think that conversation continue. I, I returned to that conversation over and over again in the last year or so. As we, uh, you know, we're talking about calling here and, um, and Gray, as you were just talking, I couldn't help but to, you know, feel a, uh, in a sense, uh, 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 a quick uh, uh, reflection in my own life. My uh, my parents actually did not want to be want me to be a pastor. Um, I guess their experience with uh, with pastors is that, and, and you know, I, I don't know how prevalent this is, but is just the men that they knew who were in ministry were, were guys who failed in law school and. Yeah. failed in engineering and and medical school they didn't know what to do with their lives so they decided to go to seminary to become pastors so when they heard that i was going to go into ministry and and, and my and my sense of call to ministry was was very early in life while i was a young college student they just interpreted that as i'm failing in all my classes and i don't know what else to do therefore i'm going to become a a pastor and that and that wasn't the case at all there's a reason, I think, and we do well as instructors and, pa- and as professors to really make our classes rigorous for that reason, you know, to, to make it demanding. It's not supposed to be a quick, easy slide through seminary. Uh, I had a pastor friend of mine tell me once, you know, getting into seminary is, not e- is, is easy. Getting out is hard, meaning that uh, to graduate because it's so demanding uh, is quite challenging. And, and but I wonder if um, it, it would help for pastors in the churches to take the best, the most qualified, the most gifted, the most intelligent people in their communities and um, who really have a love for the Lord, who have, who have shown some uh, ability in, in teaching, whether in Sunday school or in theology, and encourage them to not go into, you know, uh, medical school or not don't go into engineering go to seminary become a pastor because the churches that we our churches for the next generation really need the best of god's people to to do ministry um not the ones who perhaps are um, uh, uh uncertain and therefore go to ministry if that's going on at all to your earlier point i'm reminded how often i hear spurgeon's words said back to me about how you should only go into the pastorate if you can't do anything else. Uh, from his uh, lectures to my students, the lecture on calling, which I think is a great lecture, but that line has been misused 
so regularly to be um, a justification for someone who's failed in all other aspects of their life than going into ministry. <laughs> you know, and of course, the point that he's making is if you can't scratch that internal itch that you feel in any other vocation, you know, because you keep getting called back to the ministry, then that's what you ought to do. Um, but it gets, it becomes uh, sort of shorthand for why people who can't do anything else should just go ahead and do ministry. Then it's kind of the drip pan vocation or something like that. That's a, I think it's a, I get what, I get why the line is there, but it's unhelpful on the other side too, in that uh, it, we, uh, you know, I was told early on, you know, unless you can, unless the only thing you feel like you can do, you know, internally is ministry, you shouldn't do it. And to, to a lot of, of the points that have been made along the way, there's lots of things I could see myself doing long term and be useful and, you know, and, and, and eke out a living. But this is what God has put in my place. Um, so, I, you know, I wonder if, if that quote is unhelpful. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> Hey, everybody. It's been great talking with you uh, today about calling. We look forward to being back together with everyone in the flesh. But in the meantime, uh, look forward to getting back together next week to uh, further pursue these faculty dialogues in the faculty podcast. Uh, until then, it's been great seeing everyone. Stay safe. Take care. I think it was a great discussion. Thanks everybody for participating. Gray, are already not yet professor. It's great to see you, man. Great yeah, to be here. Yeah. Can't wait to have you here in the flesh. All right. Can't wait to be there. See you all. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.